Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, rocketing inflation. Prices have gone up 11.1% in the year to October, with basics like milk, pasta and butter driving the rising cost of living. Who's to blame and what can we do about it? We're going to hear from Lucy Antal. She's based in Liverpool and works for Feedback, a campaign group that seeks to improve food security around the world and which organises mass public feasts using food that would otherwise have gone to waste. Plus, James Meadway, a former Treasury official, now the director of the Progressive Economy Forum. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We haven't got a millionaire backer. There is no big media corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. You get details about how to subscribe over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions cost as little as £3 a month. So live a little, take out a subscription. More details, as I say, at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Lucy and to James. Lucy, before we start analysing what we need to do next, what's your assessment of how we got here? Well, it's a mix of things. I think one of the elephants in the room is definitely Brexit and the way that we've come out of a space where we would have been able to negotiate better prices as part of a larger organisation. We've also got the issue that food has been unfortunately too cheap for too long because we've been very much marketed to and managed by the corporates and the supermarkets. And it hasn't really translated in terms of real terms of of payment for the producers, the farmers, the people who stack the shelves have all been basically underpinning the cost of your food being low because they've not been paid properly. We can't deny either, can we, the fact that there's a, a war in Ukraine, which is pushing up energy prices, pushing up grain prices as well. That is a factor. I'd say it's a factor, but to be absolutely honest with you, Adrian, I think it's going to be more of a factor for next year than this year. Prices have gone up for food for things like flour to do with the Canadian drought and fires that we had last summer. That's what's affected that area. And in terms of things like the energy, etc., that was already happening. And I think, again, that's something that you know needs to be questioned in terms of things like a windfall tax really ought to be being applied. James, where do you think inflation at this rip-roaring level is coming from? Well, I'd agree with a lot of what Lucy says. I mean, you can see where it's coming from. If you go and look at what the Office for National Statistics says about the breakdown where its headline report of inflation, which is now about 11%, is coming from, it says, look, this is food prices exactly as Lucy says, and it's it's cost of energy, uh, oil and gas in particular. So that's both what people have to use in their, in their houses. You've seen the big increase in bills over this year, really dramatic increase in bills there. Also, of course, the, the cost of transporting things like food and anything else that has as a kind of physical presence has gone up very substantially as a result of that. Now, these things are, again, as Lucy said, these are these are really big global factors that are driving these two things. One is the war in Ukraine. I mean, that's whacked up gas prices most obviously, had some impacts on a few other things beyond that. Fertiliser prices have gone up. That's going to affect what happens with, exactly as Lucy says, farming and harvest next year in particular. You've also got in 
this worsening ecological situation, that extreme weather events are getting more and more frequent, and this is damaging uh, harvests around the world. It's droughts in Brazil, it's frost also in Brazil, in Canada, in lots and lots of parts of the world where you suddenly find it's harder than it used to be to grow food, and even harder sometimes to transport food. If you had drought over the summer, waterways like the Rhine in Europe, a big backbone for transporting goods across Europe, dried up and couldn't be used properly. So there's the ecological crisis uh, to throw into that. Now, all of these are big global factors that very strikingly have very little to do with what the government is currently talking about, which is a problem with how much it spends over here. This is very, very little to do with what people are doing, including what the government are doing in Britain. These are big, big global factors that are hitting everybody. And what James has said, Lucy, ties into something that you touched upon, which is that for years we've become used to having relatively cheap food, but at a price that the environment arguably can't sustain. Correct. Especially when it comes to things like um, cost of transport, the energy that's used to do it, the fact that we've gone to this kind of centralised model where it's very much just in time. So food gets taken into central points and then gets taken out again, even if it's only perhaps in the original point being grown five minutes down the road from where it will end up being sold. It's kind of being shipped off to Birmingham and then shipped out again because that's the way that the corporate world works. And that uses up energy. It uses up time. It creates a carbon footprint. All those things all are having a massive effect. It might be quite difficult for people hearing this, though, particularly at a time of raging inflation, to be told that food is already too cheap well, I think the question is actually not about food being too cheap, but the fact that we're, everybody is underpaid and other things are too expensive as well. The amount of money that people are now having to put towards their energy bills, the costs of private housing, the costs of transport. I mean, if you're lucky enough to live in London, you have subsidised transport. Elsewhere, you don't. Being able to get to where you can purchase food, all of these things have got a major cost, and that's not including the cost of food. So it's also looking at the wider picture of people being underpaid. What do you see of the impact of this food inflation at the moment on ordinary people? Oh, I see a lot of worry. I see a lot of people who are switching to ever-increasing budget brands who are using food that you might describe as a bulk food, so lots of carbohydrates, not necessarily that healthy. I mean, there was some research recently done by the, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation that was able to say that 36% of consumers are unable to eat a balanced diet at the moment, and that's because they frankly can't afford to. You mentioned the price of energy. So far, the government has resisted a conventional windfall tax as we speak, we're anticipating a budget from Jeremy Hunt. What should he do about a windfall tax? I think there ought to be one. They seem to have managed to do one quite successfully in Europe. I'm not quite sure what the reluctance is to do one here. It seems a pretty easy target to me. James, you've got some interesting things to say, I think, about how the government deficit is not impacted by the price of gas or harvest? What the government runs its deficit, in other words, the amount it needs to borrow, the difference between what it gets in taxes and what it spends on everything, it's not really going to have the impact on inflation that, that the government is now trying to claim. I mean, uh, Jeremy Hunt was out even ahead of 
these inflation figures saying that, you know, we, we're going to be doing this budget with lots of spending cuts because we think that's a way to get inflation under control. Now, look, to be honest with you, putting up people's council tax, which is something they're talking about, or not paying nurses enough doesn't actually change the price of the gas that we're buying from Qatar. These things are not connected. So the idea that you're going to go and do a load of spending cuts, tax rises for a whole load of people already really feeling the pinch, because that's what it looks like at this point in time, that isn't going to address inflation. Now, most forecasts will say that inflation is probably going to come down into next year, not back to the kind of levels we've been used to for the last probably two decades, or about 2% or so. So that's not back to the Bank of England target, but much lower than the 11% now. You can already see gas prices in Europe and across Asia falling from their peaks in August, and eventually that will start to feed through into into sort of domestic bills and other bills that we see. So you expect inflation to come down somewhat. That's not very much to do with government uh, spending. And I think the issue is something that here is something that Lucy hit on, which is it's not so much just that prices are, are too high and going up too much. It's that look, we have a very low wage economy in Britain. We have had for a long period of time where wages have lagged behind the rate of economic growth in general. And for a long period of time, actually lagged behind even the fairly low inflation that we've had for the last sort of decade or so. Now, of course, it's disastrous. This is the biggest fall in real wages, wages after you take account of inflation for many, many decades that people are living through. So they're really feeling the pinch. What you want is wages to go up. And what you might also want is some protection against some of those price rises. The energy price guarantee that the government introduced to sort of cap, not entirely, I mean, prices have still gone up as people will notice looking at their bills, but to cap some of the costs of energy prices has reduced overall rate of inflation, the Office of National Statistics say, by about 2%. Now, that's government spending that has brought inflation down. The idea that you're going to do austerity spending cuts, that you're going to hack away at whatever's left of what government provides and try and bring inflation down, I think is, is nonsensical, but this is this is what the government's currently set on. They should be doing the opposite. If we're going into a recession and everybody says we are, the Bank of England says we are, the IMF says we are, I mean, it's kind of obvious people were feeling this already. If you're going into a recession, we need more government spending, we need government supporting the economy, and we need government investing in things like renewable energy so we don't have these price surges in the future. There have been suggestions that the minimum wage might be increased in the budget. Is that a positive move, do you think? Yes, it is. Yes, for sure. The minimum wage as it stands has been increased somewhat more rapidly than it it had been in the last few years. The the government under George Osborne is actually leaning quite heavily on the minimum wage to cover up for the fact that they were imposing austerity elsewhere. You had this rather awkward situation in bits of the labour market where you had a large number of people reliant on on universal credits and this sort of thing, and then the government trying to use minimum wage to to compensate for those sort of low-paid jobs. So there's a degree of that that was already taking place. It's broadly speaking good news if the minimum wage goes up in line with current inflation. That means at least people, some of the lowest paid people out there, aren't actively being made significantly worse off by price rises. And and you've got to bear in mind that when the inflation, the headline inflation rate is 11%, the price of food is going up far more than that. It's like 16% or more. And if you're poorer, because you have to spend more of your money proportionately on essentials like food, because you can't avoid buying them, you feel inflation much worse. Your rate of inflation is going to be higher than 11%. So you need a minimum wage that goes up by at least the headline rate of inflation, and ideally up to the kind of levels that the trade unions have been campaigning for to compensate for this decade of very, very low pay for right across the country, but particularly for the low paid. And that 
that point you're talking about 15 pounds an hour or that sort of level that starts to get people into not having poverty pay which you've got a real chronic problem of now you know when you see the figures of the number of people going to food banks who are in work not out of work not unemployed not you know, not working for some other reason actually in work but still having to go to a food bank it's shocking stuff so there's a problem with poverty pay and minimum wage can be a lever to get people out of that the signaling suggests lucy that we are going to go down the path of austerity 2.0 that we are going to be in a world of spending cuts of higher taxes in order to plug what the government regards as a budget black hole well you can't see my face but i'm eye rolling so hard right now the idea that they want to do more austerity i just can't conceive how they think that's going to in any way going to help things. I mean, public services were cut absolutely in the last 10 to 12 years. And, you know, we've gone beyond we've gone beyond the fat and the meat and we're going into the bone now. And the idea that they're going to reduce this even further begins to make me wonder what on earth a government is for. If you are not here to support citizens, to give people a way of living and being able to support them during tough times, what are you there for? Are you there just to make money for your friends? I'm gobsmacked. As we saw with Quasi Quarteng's mini budget, if you seek to borrow money without showing that you can pay it back to the banks and the global financial institutions through growth, then you're in trouble, aren't you? And I suppose that partly underpins the idea that we have to reduce our deficit. But is that the same gentleman who, who basically we lost 30 billion with their mini budget? I mean, that's a big hole that's been created through messing about with the markets and creating even more problems. So I find it very odd that there's always this talk about how there's no money to do this, there's no money to do that, yet we've got money to have coronations, we've got money to have festivals of Brexit that nobody attends. It's a question of priorities and it's a question of where you are putting the money that we have as a nation. And it's got to be much more focused on the fact that you've got to support children, you've got to support older people, you've got to get people well and healthy if you want to create a proper, long-term, well-managed, healthy economy. If you've got 36% of the population unable to eat properly, that's a really bad indictment of their policies. Sure. But you take my underlying point, which is that you have to have a credible plan, one which can be paid for, because if you don't, the global financial institutions will not lend you money. Let's unpack this a little bit, because there's, there's been an awful lot of, of nonsense flung around by the government and by its sort of media outriders in the last few weeks. First up, the fiscal hole, the fiscal black hole sometimes. This isn't a real economic fact. This is not something that exists in the same way that dramatic increases in the price of food or your, your household gas bill uh, exists. That's a hard economic fact. You not being paid enough, that's a hard economic fact. That's something that's happening right now. The fiscal black hole, so-called, is based on the idea that you can forecast what's going to happen in five years' time to growth and to interest rates that the government faces. And the idea that the government in five years' time will have its debt falling relative to the size of the economy. So the first part of that is a forecast. 
And economic forecasts, especially now, just think of what's happened in the last few years, are extremely uncertain. This isn't the same as as like a real natural science where you can reasonably predictably say what's going to happen. There's a great deal of uncertainty built into the forecast. And then if you take the targets that the government itself has set, nobody else has set this target for saying we will have debt falling relative to GDP in five years' time. That's the government's own target. If they want to change it, they can. They've had many, they've had six different targets like this just in the last sort of 10 years or so. They always change it. They keep missing them and they change it. These are not real economic facts in the same way the direct experience of people right now of an economy that isn't working is a fact. And if you want to think about what we're going to do in the future, what we're going to plan for now to do in the future, you need to say, okay, in times of uncertainty, where geopolitically there's all sorts going on, we don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the world. We know the environmental crisis is going to get worse. We know that people aren't being paid enough right now. We need to address these real economic problems of low investment, low productivity, of building resilience into the economic system. That means investment by government. That means having public services that work, not an NHS that collapses into crisis every winter, even without COVID. That's the plan you need to work on. And if you can present that plan, and sometimes people get very scared about you know what happens in international financial markets and this sort of thing. If you can present that path and say, this is the path for borrowing into the future. These, this is where we're going to raise the money from. These are the tax rises that we're going to ask particularly wealthy people to make sure we can pay for that. That, I think, gets you through all of this fine. You don't need to invent a fiscal black hole, get everyone to panic about it, and then say, well, now we're going to have to do austerity all over again. Frankly, I don't think the country can take it. I think what's going to happen on in the autumn statement is that the government is likely to try and push all this austerity off until after the next election, because basically they're cowards. But really, I don't think we can take another round of spending cuts. We're already got public services on their knees. We've already got people desperately underpaid. We've already got a recession bearing down. And now the government turning around and say they're going to add to it by cutting their own spending. None of this makes any sense. The justifications for what the government's doing don't add up. And people need to think about what really matters in the economy and think about how you get there, not panic about fiscal black holes in the future that actually don't really exist. Just so we're clear, James, you are advocating higher taxes, greater public spending, but greater public spending, which in the long run will ensure that we are able to pay our way going forward. It's quite simple. We should start from what kind of society we want to live in. Britain is still the sixth largest economy on the planet. It is a big, rich country. Now, the major problem, or at least one of them, is that a great deal of that wealth is in a very, very small number of hands, very, very small number of people at the top, and a small number of very large companies. I mean, British corporations right now have about £900 billion sitting in their bank accounts, for example. So that's one of the problems you might want to address. That's why things like a wealth tax or variations in a wealth tax start to make sense equalizing the amount of tax you pay if you have a capital gain, if you sell a bunch of shares or, or maybe a very valuable painting, that's a capital gain when you make the profit. At the minute, the tax you pay in that is much less than the tax you pay from actually going out to work and earning that money. So equalize those two rates of tax. That's something around 16 billion, 18 billion pounds a year. You can start to think about where that money is going to come from if you're prepared to address in a more serious fashion the inequality that we're up against. So you can increase public spending, and we're going to have to. The demands in the NHS coming out the back of coronavirus, it's another £10 billion a year, says the King's Fund think tank that looks into these things. If you think about the ageing population, if you think about getting our schools back to where they should be, if you think about how you might want public transport, which Lucy mentioned, to function properly across the country, you can have to pay for these things. And the problem isn't there isn't any money out there. This is a sort of myth that sometimes you, you get, oh dear, oh dear, we've opened up a black hole. Well, the black hole's not really 
there. The money's just disappeared. Not true. There's lots of money. This is a rich country. So make sure that money is spent and used wisely. That means change the tax system, spend the money on the things that we care about, the NHS, schools, whatever it might be. Then you'll get a properly functioning economy. I'd just like to say I completely and utterly agree with everything that James has just said. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in this country is that everything is always predicated around the election cycle. So everything is always short term. It's always, you know, sort of two, three years into the future, rather than looking to build long term prospects and really work at how we can help people to get out of the poverty trap and start being able to live rather than just survive. Lucy, thanks very much indeed for your time. Lucy Antel there from Feedback. Thanks also to James Meadway, Director of the Progressive Economy Forum. My name's Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's a wonderful monthly newspaper. And if you take out a subscription to that, you'll be helping to fund this podcast as well. So head over to bylinetimes.com, investigate subscriptions. They start from as little as £3 a month, and you'll be doing a good thing. Thank you very much, by the way, if you have already done so. And thank you also to the many people who promote our work via social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so everything you do via Twitter and Facebook and so on is really, really helpful. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you all again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.